Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. Hello and welcome to Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm your host, Sarah Whitmire, and today I'm co-hosting with WFIU, WTIU's Joe Wren. Bob Zaltzberg is out today. Today we're talking about the 2021 legislative session just wrapped up this week. We've got a great guest, great list of guests today. Senator Mark Mesmer, the Senate Majority Floor Leader, joins us as well as Senator Greg Taylor, the Minority Floor Leader and Brandon Smith, the State House Bureau Chief for Indiana Public Broadcasting. We are doing our show remotely today over Zoom, so you can't call in with questions, but you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition and send us questions there. You can also send us questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. So Brandon, we're just gonna start off by talking about the budget. It was a long session, a budget year, the budget got a $3 billion boost from the federal government, so it really passed without much objection. Can you kind of run through just what are some of the major highlights and the spending priorities? Yeah, I mean, this is uh, when lawmakers every couple of years when they pass a new budget talk about it being a historic budget, but this was truly a historic budget. I don't think we'll see this kind of money spent in a budget uh, for a long time in Indiana. And it's for a couple reasons. You just mentioned the $3 billion that Indiana is getting from the American Rescue Plan, the latest COVID-19 relief package passed by President Joe Biden and, and, and uh, congressional Democrats this time. Um, that's some of the, the historic spending that's going on. Uh, but that's not all of it, because just about a week before session ended, lawmakers also got an updated revenue forecast. That's normal. That That's what always happens every budget uh, cycle. They get a new revenue forecast a week or two before they wrap up the session and finish writing the budget to get a, a, as good a picture as possible to know what the revenues for the state are going to be like for the next two years so they can finalize that budget. And this was an eye-popping forecast. It projected $2 billion more dollars for the state to spend over the next two years. And the bulk of that is going to K-12 education. And that shouldn't be a surprise. Indiana spends half of its $37 billion budget on K-12 education. If you throw in higher education, it becomes something like 60% of the budget. And what that new investment in education, I think it's $1.9 billion more dollars uh, in this new budget in K-12 education, what that does is a variety of things. On the one hand, and something that got a lot of Democrats, all but three Democrats in the General Assembly voted for this state budget, which is practically unheard of for that much bipartisan support, although we'll hear from Senator Taylor, who was one of those no votes, I believe. Um, but in K-12 education, Republicans, for the first time um, this session, finally addressed some of the recommendations that Governor Holcomb's Teacher Compensation Commission um, uh, uh, issued late last year. And it, that they, they put those in the budget. One of them is that it spends at least $600 million more million on traditional K-12 public education. And that 
will help raise teacher salaries because the state sends local districts the money and those local districts make the decisions about teacher pay. But it also says to those local districts, you have to spend at least 45% of the per pupil funding the state is sending you on educator salaries. And then it says you should set $40,000 as your minimum teacher salary. Now, it's not a requirement, but if schools don't follow that, they have to send a report back to the state as to why they're not following it. And I think the, 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 uh, the latest report um, from that Teacher Compensation Commission on the 45% number said that about 100 school districts out of close to 300 um, statewide didn't meet that 45% threshold. So it'll be interesting to see how that, that goes. But this is a huge amount of money that should get teachers the pay raises they're looking for. The other thing that that money did in terms of education was allow Republicans to expand the school voucher program as much as House Republicans initially proposed. And that would increase eligibility for that voucher program up to 300% of, of a federal poverty standard. Essentially meaning that if you are a family of four making about $145,000 a year, you could now be eligible to get this private school voucher from the state. It also allowed them to create um, somewhat controversial new educational uh, scholarship um, uh, awards uh, that the House Republicans proposed. Senate Republicans were initially a little more hesitant um, about the, the sort of policy that they're creating there. It's for special education students. It's a small program to start out with, sort of a pilot program of sorts, uh, but all of this money uh, sort of allowed them to do that without taking anything away from traditional public uh, K-12 public schools. So um, there's a lot of other things that the budget spends money on, including using that federal money, as well as one-time state dollars, uh, investments in infrastructure, mental health, um, economic recovery and, and um, uh, regional development, uh, next level flights, body cameras for both state and local police, uh, but education, of course, always the top priority for the state budget, and it continued to be in this historic one. Yeah, and we're going to dive in in detail to a lot more of those things uh, over the next hour. Um, Senator Mesmer, I do want to go to you, but before you you uh, give your reaction to the state budget and the priorities and how you feel about it, we did get a question about just... Brandon talked about this, about the increased projection in state tax revenues. So before you talk about the budget, can you explain what the reason is for the increased projections in state tax revenue? Uh, sure. The uh, the primary, um, well, really all, all revenue sources were up. Uh, sales tax uh, revenues to the state have been extremely strong, you know, throughout the pandemic. Uh, and, and one of the things we switched, you know, a few years ago was, you know, online uh, sales, you know, you know, Amazon, you know, that, that was our, you know, test case, but the, you know, the online sales tax receipts, the income tax receipts um, were, you know, were uh, ahead of pace and, and, and really, you know, across the, you know, every segment of our uh, income stream was, was up. And in reality, probably the December forecast was, was, you know, a little conservatively low, uh, you know, from July through the end of the year, all, you know, all of our month to month, um, you know, income projections were, were exceeding, you know, our targets. And so, you know, the, the justification for, you know, for going a little, little more uh, in December was there, it was there, but I guess the economist, you know, needed another six months to make sure that the, the trends were, were real. 
And and then when we got the April forecast, you know, they you know they you know revised the you know the the two year cycle up two billion dollars, which Greg and I can both remember from 2009, our first years in the General Assembly. I was in the House and he was in the Senate. That that April forecast ended up a billion dollar uh, billion dollars down <laughs> instead of two billion up. So it's a it's a much you know different problem and a, and a much better problem uh, to deal with than than having the income projections go the other direction. So. Uh, but really, you know, all sectors were were strong, and and sales taxes are single biggest you know item, and, and it's continued to trend, you know, you know, up, you know, throughout, you know, you know, since the May June dip that we hit hit at the beginning of the pandemic, and and when you know the temporary slowdown. I mean, from July July on, things have trended pretty strong. So um, pleased to see that. Okay, yeah. Um, I, I do want to get your reaction to the budget. As Brandon was saying, certainly the bulk of it is going towards education, but were you, are you pleased with the, the final biennial budget? I, I was extremely pleased. I mean, there's always, you know, an item or two that, you know, we all would like to have seen landed in there. I was, I was hoping to get a little bit more money, you know, for DNR and, and you know, some, you know, some folks in the, in the tech park world, but I mean, those were, you know, small items that didn't, didn't make it, but as a whole, and Brandon summarized it pretty well. Uh, you know, 1.9 you know billion dollars in the K through 12 education. That, it's a, a, a one billion dollar increase in tuition support. We had about 300 million that we had done you know done in our uh, first version of the budget in earlier you know earlier in April, and put another 600 million you know into it um, you know after the April 15th revisions. 150 million dollars to fund learning loss for students impacted by the pandemic. 300 million additional dollars into special ed, you know, education. That's huge. The uh, the tuition support that we're giving, and 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 he you know he phrased it you know pretty correctly. Uh, you know you better be able to explain why you can't hit a forty thousand dollar minimum. And if you take the tuition support dollars that we're giving to schools and the forty five percent requirement that forty five percent of it go to teacher salaries, that's enough to fund a, an average pay of sixty thousand dollars per teacher. And that is huge, and 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 really, uh, I mean, you know, everything that the the governor's you know panel recommend, recommended, we were able to to fund. I, you know, when when we looked at the funding that it would take to, to get that done in this budget, you know, in in the fall, I was not sure we'd have that kind of money available. But you know, thank goodness we we did. Um, another five million dollars to increase for uh, for non English speaking uh, students. Uh, you know, flipping it to higher education. $4.2 billion going to support our higher education institutions in the state. Uh, you know, some of the stuff that's, you know, a little bit down in the weeds, but things that were, that will really make a difference to, you know, you know, people just across the state uh, maintains the support for the choice in-home services programs, fully funds Medicaid, which you know, took another $279 million uh, increase this session, uh, $40 million uh, additional money in, to provide direct service, uh, Direct service provider wages of $15 an hour. They've been asking for that for years. This year, we were finally able to do it. Uh, $10 million in both years of the, in the biennium to raise uh, home health home health care rates. Uh, $2 million in both years of the biennium to assist for assisted living pay rate increases. Um, and then uh, $500 million into what they're calling the you know the ready grants uh, that the IEDC will administer to help. Uh, you know, and it doesn't have to necessarily be uh, like we did with the, with the regional cities. It can be uh, counties or, or regional development authorities uh, grouping together uh, to apply for economic development grants within their within their regions. Uh, Sixty million dollars 
for small business grants, primarily targeted to, you know, the restaurant and tourism in, uh, industry that has taken a pretty good, you know, hit, you know, throughout the pandemic and, and you know, going to be a, a slow uh, climb out for them. But I mean, just it, th this budget and, and, and I, uh, Senator Bray summarized it well, and I think it's the, the phrase we were all looking for it. This budget is transformational. I mean, it, and it may be a once in a, in our lifetime uh, opportunity, but we were able to, to significantly increase funding for education and pay down long-term debt. I mean, and that, that will be in the, the, the $600 million that we put into the, the, uh, the uh, post 96 teacher pension fund, that'll save about 90 to hundred million dollars a year and pay that and get that trust fund, uh, you know, structurally balanced, you know, probably five years sooner than, than, it, than it would have had we not infused that cash into the program. So just, just the short-term goals that we were able to achieve and the long-term uh, stabilization that, that we're able to do by paying down debt, by, by, uh, refilling the unemployment trust fund by, uh, look, you know, looking at, you know, paying cash for I-69's completion, things that, that'll just save, you know, continue to save us money and, and help in, in every budget cycle, uh, you know, over the next 10 years, probably. Mm -hmm. Before I turn the floor over here to Senator Taylor, just a quick follow-up, because we did get a question about whether now is the right time to be paying down debt as we are in this great recession. Well, we uh, we've also within this budget we've we've structured structurally put in some some very significant reserves just to you know I think we're going to have um, about 2.5 billion in reserves 2.5 2.6 billion after the first year of the biennium, biennium and we're projecting about a 2.8 billion dollar reserve uh, amount after the second year of the biennium so we were able to to refill this year's uh, surplus I think we'll end this year at about 2.3 billion. So we're we're leaving cushion, uh, you know, in case there is a downturn, because there, you know, you never know. Next year could, you know, a recession could crop up that we don't, didn't expect. But we're leaving enough cushion, you know, within within our, uh, you know, budget surpluses to allow for a potential dip down the road as well. Okay, and Senator Greg Taylor, what are your thoughts about the budget and priorities and spending? Well, you uh, got lucky today to have a contrasting and. Uh, uh, policy. Uh, first of all, let me say this. Everything that Senator Messmer said about the budget, the, the pension pay down, the money for teacher, hopefully that will go to teacher salary increases, the 45%. Yes, they are in the budget. But we also saw a significant amount of things that give me a lot of trouble. Um, I was able to obtain some assistance with some projects to help with food deserts here in Indianapolis. That's a good thing. I want to uh, say thank you to uh, Senator Messmer and the leadership, Ryan Mishler, uh, Appropriations Chair, for including that in the budget. But it was not the best we could do. And here's the reason why. When uh, vouchers came to fruition, we spent about $15 million out of the biennial budget for uh, for vouchers. And it was touted as a program that was going to help poor and struggling students who were in underperforming schools uh, to be able to, to take advantage of the private school uh, opportunity. We are now at, uh, I believe it's going to be somewhere around $268 million. $268 million. This is over a 1,600% increase for now, families of four that make up to $145,000 in their household income. 
The key to that, to me, is the fact that those children, if the parents made the choice to send them to private school, could afford it. We have one of the lowest cost of livings here in the state of Indiana. And they never would have been on the payroll, if you will, of the state. They would have never received assistance. I mean, we sent, me and my wife sent uh, up to eighth grade, uh, well, up to sixth grade for my younger, but up to eighth grade for my older child to a private school. We didn't make $145,000 a year, and we were able to uh, budget and make sure we paid full tuition. So that money is coming out of the school funding formula. So if you could imagine, if we had just kept it at the levels that we started, there would be another $200 million available for public schools. That gives me a lot of problems. The second piece, um, the teacher pension pay down. Um, you asked a great question, and uh, uh, I do, uh, I'm, a, I'm a transactional attorney in my private life, and I know what debt service payments are for a AAA-rated debt right now, and it's somewhere in the 2% range. And when you can borrow at 2%, you should take advantage of that. I'm not telling you to go out there and leverage everything. But the fact that we're now going to take down and defeat some bonds and pay off some other things, it takes away from the existing cash. And the question I have is what are we going to do with that $90 million of savings that we're going to create going forward with the teacher pension pay down? Interesting discussion for next budget cycle, but I'm just interested. The, the last thing. We did some other things that nobody knows about that were not in the budget. It just made me feel terrible for people. We did something in the last couple of days uh, of the legislative session that the people in 2020, through no fault of their own, due to a government shutdown, the pandemic, received unemployment benefits. And we are now going to tax those unemployment benefits that they receive from the federal government like we do from the unemployment benefits that they receive from the state. So those people, which, by the way, that's going to be in a couple of weeks, um, that receive those unemployment benefits and the federal government said we're not going to tax you on income are now going to be taxed on a portion of their income for those dollars. That should be troubling to all of us. And here's the reason why. At the same time, while we're taxing the people of the state of Indiana, small business owners and large business owners who took advantage of the payroll protection plan that the federal government said, and then the federal government came back and said, we're going to forgive those loans. Now, in Indiana, we said, we're not going to count that as Indiana income tax for you. So on one hand, we're taxing the people who work for the companies, but the owners of the companies are going to get a direct benefit to their bottom line because we're not going to tax the PPP money. Again, that was forgiven. In other words, it becomes a grant to those companies. And that just troubled me. So I had to vote no on the budget. And uh, it still troubles me that we have people who believe that this was the best that we could do. I just... I'm one of those that don't believe that's the best we could do. Uh, Senator Messmer, did you want to respond just just briefly before we move move on? Uh, sure. So uh, the state has always taxed unemployment benefits, uh, never has given an exemption to that. And 
people you know knew when they were drawing their unemployment uh, you know you know from anytime they draw unemployment they have the option of having having their state income tax um, taken from that unemployment unemployment check before they get it uh, and most people across the state uh, prepared for that and and, and all we all the uh, state exemption was the federal government gave a, your first ten thousand two hundred dollars of of exemption uh, and 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 gave a gave a waiver for your federal income taxes on that the state didn't adopt that waiver uh, i mean that first ten thousand two hundred if you're a low income family there's also low income uh, charts that that you're exempt if you're low income your first twelve thousand is is exempt anyway so um, the, the worst case that anybody could owe their state income tax on that first ten thousand two hundred was three hundred and twenty nine dollars and forty six cents most of which uh, people would have had you know, taken out as they were getting their their un, un, unemployment draws anyway, and uh, you know, the, it was just the consistency of the treatment of un, unemployment that that the state has always done. I mean, could, you know, could the state have uh, exempted that and given you know given that money away? You know, they they could have, but you know, they never have exempted. And uh, the feds did choose to to waive it from uh, federal unemployment tax or federal income tax, but uh, the state just maintained their their consistent policy that they've had since 1986. Well, they, hold on. There's a little there's a little asterisk behind that. That's state unemployment benefits that Senator Messer is talking about. State and federal. Federal unemployment. Well, federal unemployment benefits in the past have been taxed by the state, but those federal unemployment benefits were not considered to be. Remember, people did not get laid off; they were furloughed. This is a totally different situation. And if we're going to tax the people, why don't we tax the companies too? They got grants. They got benefits from the pandemic. Why didn't we tax them on income for that? That's my only point. If we're going to do it for one since 1986, why don't we do it for the other companies since 1986? And here's the additional part. We also shored up the unemployment insurance fund that usually is paid by employers to the tune of $900 million that employers typically had to pay into the fund so that their employees who get laid off or are fired or some kind of uh, uh, out of under, they're not terminated. They get benefits. Companies got a $900 million boost from the state of Indiana. And to me, it shows a stark difference between supporting the people and supporting companies. And I think you can do both. And so I I just, the policy just doesn't sit right with me. I'm gonna go ahead and jump in just because we're almost halfway through the show already. And we got a lot of a lot of ground okay. to cover here. Okay. So uh, Brandon, I, I wanna go to you next, just because we, we keep saying the session adjourned and then there's sort of this asterisk by it. that they can reconvene. So can you talk about that, the redistricting process and what options the legislature had? I mean, is this unprecedented that we're sort of on a pause? Yeah, it's absolutely unprecedented. And it's something that Speaker uh, Todd Houston and Senate President Pro Tem Rod Bray um, both said that this needs to be a one-off. This should not become the new way that Indiana does its sessions. So, we just had the census last year, as we do every 10 years, and what follows that is redistricting, where Indiana lawmakers redraw both the state and congressional legislative district lines. 
The problem is that in order to do that, they need um, certain information from the U.S. Census Bureau that's collected through the census. The problem is the pandemic really caused a lot of delays with getting that information. And the Census Bureau has been saying for a while, hey, this is not going to be on time. And the latest, I think, projections are the, the redistricting data that the state needs could come as late as like August or September. Now, the problem is that you know, the session is supposed to end in state law on April 29th. But if they weren't going to get the necessary information, that was going to cause two problems. One, you have to sort of separate the state legislative districts and the congressional ones. The state legislative districts, there was nothing in Indiana law that said, well, if you don't draw them in time, that it ha you know, something else happens. But there was with congressional districts. Under, in state law, if the General Assembly didn't um, uh, redraw those congressional district lines by the end of their legislative session, it gets kicked over to a special commission appointed by primarily the governor. And, and lawmakers didn't want that to happen because this was obviously out of everyone's control. So the fix that they came up with was that instead of adjourning what's called sine die, it's a Latin phrase that denotes the end of the legislative session, instead of adjourning sine die like normal when they were done with their work, they adjourned as if it were just another day. And the, the session, um, through a bill that they passed and was signed into law this week by the governor, the session was extended until November 15th, um, basically about as late as you can go without the next legislative session technically starting up. Uh, and, and what that will allow them to do is not just come back later this year whenever they get the necessary redistricting information, but the other thing that extending the session instead of coming back for a special session allows you to do is the committees can meet, they can have hearings around the state, they can um, handle the actual bills um, much in a much easier process. A lot of the procedural issues that would come up with having to call in a special session and then handing bills down and waiving rules, a lot of those are taken care of by just not ending the session. Now, they can also technically come back between now and November to do anything else they want, but Speaker Houston and Senator, Senator Bray have both stressed that it would take, I think uh, Speaker Houston used the word very five times. It was very, 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 very unusual or emergency situation. Uh, so it, it's most likely that they will redraw those district lines in August or September when the Census Bureau gets them the information and that's why this session was extended. Okay, a, a couple interesting things you said there, one of which, um that, that the, this would have gone to a committee appointed by the government or by the governor. And it sort of seemed like the general tone between Republicans and uh, the governor this session was a was a bit strained. I mean, this is one example. And then also we had we have the lawsuit that the governor just filed this week. Um, do you think there's some tension there? And I'll let Senator Messner weigh in maybe after Brandon does here. If you listen to the governor and, this, and the Republican leadership of the General Assembly, they all stress that the working relationship remains not just intact, but healthy. Um, Speaker Houston in particular repeatedly went out of his way to praise Governor Holcomb's leadership and decision-making during um, the pandemic, particularly because that's what this, the, the, the lawsuit you just referenced deals with emergency powers, right? So during the pandemic, the governor um, using the emergency powers that are in state law um, issued dozens of executive orders. Many of them 
were relatively popular. Some of them, in fact, lawmakers put into state law permanently um, during this, this legislative session, particularly on, uh, I think, about telehealth expansion. Um, but some of them were very not popular. Uh, and so where you have legislative leadership stressing that the working relationship between them and the governor remains uh, strong and, and healthy, um, I know that what we call rank and file legislators, so those not in the highest positions of leadership, quite frankly, were really unhappy with some of the governor's decision making. And so there was this effort to sort of push back against that and give lawmakers more of a voice in future emergencies, more of a, a stronger seat at the table. And the way they chose to do that was by putting into state law a way for them to call themselves into a special session during a public emergency. The issue is that Governor Holcomb, and not just Governor Holcomb, but some constitutional experts, say that the Indiana Constitution doesn't allow that. It only gives that governor, they uh, only gives that power, they say, to the governor. Now, lawmakers say it's silent on the legislature calling itself into a special session um, so that the, the Constitution will allow it. That question might have to be decided by a court, as we saw in this lawsuit, although there are, although there are other procedural issues that might prevent that question from being answered. But it depends on who you ask, but the governor and legislative leaders say there isn't tension between the, the second and third floors of the state house. that the relationship remains strong. They just have a fundamental disagreement about this particular bill. Senator Messmer, I'm going to let, let you respond directly to that because you, you were one of the sponsors on one of the bills that would place some limitations on executive orders. Um, well, I would I would think I'd say Brandon's summary is 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 correct. I mean, there's there's obviously disagreement on that was specific bill was House Bill 1123, and we had a, a Senate Bill 407 that was another version of that earlier in session. Um, and and I think it's just a and and in reality what the bill sets up in statute was how the the process played out. Uh, you know, through you know the April May June, you know the early early part of the pandemic. Uh, I mean, the collaborative process that that ended up in the House House Enrolled Act 1123 was what happened, you know, on the ground with you know with meetings with uh, with the governor, and would really in involve you know House and Senate uh, majority and minority members on, on the on the, uh, the 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 panel that would collaborate with the governor, you know, in a in a statewide emergency, um, you know, sh should you know should that you know happen again at some time in the future, so. Um, We'll see how that we'll see how it plays out, you know, you know, through the legal challenges and and uh, you know, I'm I'm reasonably sure. And and uh, Senator Glick had a resolution uh, filed this year, and and we'll bring it back next year and probably the year after, you know, to you know to allow a constitutional change, you know, to take the ambiguity away on on having the ability to bring ourselves back in 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 such a scenario. Uh, but you know, if if the if the courts rule against the those provisions of House Enrolled Act 1123, you know, I mean, you know, we'll, we'll comply with whatever the ruling is. Uh, we, we think that, I mean, the constitution says the governor, you know, may call the general assembly back in the special session. It, it's not specific about, it, it's silent on the general assembly's ability to do it. And and the same constitution also says the, the general assembly's house, you know, shall set their calendars for, for when they meet. So, um, you know, there's experts on both sides of the issue who, who will argue for and against uh, the the uh, constitutionality of, of House Rule Act 1123, and we'll see where it plays out at the and at the end of the day. It, it's it, if if we have to make a constitutional change to do it, you know, we feel like there's you know strong public support to 
you know, to back that effort. This is Joe Rennie here from the newsroom ch- chiming in just for a second. I wanted to address this to Senator Taylor. Uh, Jan- back in January, Democratic caucus agenda consisted of about four main points. One of those was raising the minimum wage for Hoosiers to learn a, to earn a living wage. Could, can you address that and what happened? Well, um, yeah, I think that uh, question is a good question. Nothing happened um, except for uh, something that we've been fighting for as Democrats for, my goodness, for over 10 years, which was increasing the minimum wage to $15 for healthcare workers that go into people's homes and should have some sense of security that they're doing something they'll be able to feed their family. Um, it still uh, bothers me that we have not uh, subject, subjected the, the state to a minimum wage law. Uh, we did it. Now, here's the consternation, though. The governor signed an executive order doing that very thing for, for contractors with the state. Um, so we can, the governor has decided that it would be in the best interest of those people who do, do do business with the state of Indiana to pay a minimum wage, um, higher than what seven twenty five I think it is right now. Um, so, yeah, it just went nowhere. Uh, Senator Melton tried to amend that into the budget, and it was it was actually voted down along party lines. So uh, that's troubling. But uh, you know, the the other thing about the question that Sarah asked was. You know, actions speak louder than words. I'll just leave it to that. Uh, you know, I've the state of Indiana is going to be fighting the state of Indiana in a lawsuit. That's that's a first for me. Uh, so if, if we're getting along and everything's hunky dory, why would you sue that very individual? I I don't understand it. So today we're talking with our guests about the legislative session. You can tweet us your questions to be asked on air at noon edition, or you can email them to news at indianapublicmedia.org. Brandon, I have to ask you about the wetlands bill. We've gotten a lot of questions about it, what the real intention of this bill is and who it would benefit. Can you talk a little bit about that one? I know the governor just signed it yesterday. Yeah, the governor just signed it, um, drawing um, some some ire uh, of a, a wide variety of groups, including, quite frankly, the Chamber of Commerce, which is generally in lockstep with uh, the governor and Republicans on on most issues, but not all issues, certainly. Um, so the Senate Enrolled Act 389, which the governor just signed into law yesterday, removes protections for a class of smaller wetlands. And it, and it gets rid of um, uh, some protections for another class of wetlands that the state considers uh, what, what they call somewhat rare or ecologically uh, important. Uh, the Department of uh, the state's Department of Environmental Management estimates that more of 80, more than 80 percent, though, of the state's wetlands fall into those two categories that are I- impacted by this bill. Now, supporters of 389 have said that the, the existing wetland protections in Indiana were too strict, stricter than they they are in most of the country. And that causes home prices to go up. And importantly, we heard this a lot uh, in uh, committee, uh, it creates conflicts between the state's environmental regulators and farmers. We heard this particularly uh, when this bill was first authored. Chris Garten, uh, I believe one of its um, uh, proponents, and maybe even the author, uh, you'll have to forgive me, that's not normally a bill I cover. Um, But hundreds of groups, though, 
Um, more than 100, I should say, uh, different groups sent a letter to the governor earlier this week asking him to veto the bill. They say that wetlands are important and that these regulations um, will lead to the destruction of some of them. And, and they talk about um, both their role in re retaining water, especially during floods, as well as recharging the water supply, particularly in urban areas, could be threatened by this bill. Now, there's also going to be a study committee or a study uh, group created by this bill that will look at the wetlands across Indiana and state policy when it comes to those issues. So you could see potentially future changes or tweaks uh, to these protections in the future. But for now, uh, this one, th this was an issue that was uh, a lot of focus during the legislative session, a fair amount of controversy on both sides, and one that a lot of people hoped that the governor would veto, but he ultimately ended up signing. Okay, and this is a follow-up follow question that we got, and I think this relates to the executive orders, and maybe Senator Messmore, you can help with this one. Um, the question is, does the bill that allows religious organizations to meet during health emergencies, does it is that giving religious organizations special treatment? Uh, well, Senator Cook was the author of that bill, and he really he crafted the the uh, the wording of that bill to follow what constitutional um, law law has really provided across across the country where this issue has been challenged. It doesn't give them carte blanche exemption from from a governor's executive order on on uh, you know the size of a congregation that can meet. But it requires that the a local health board or the, or the state uh, put the same uh, they're, they're classified as essential businesses and whatever the whatever the standards are that that are put in place for uh, you know other businesses have to apply to churches. So if, if the if the standard would be 50% occupancy, you know for you know for a business, that would be the most that would be the most stringent occupancy standard you could put on a on a, on a religious uh, congregation to meet for religious services as well. Uh, so, I mean, there was, there was concern and there was, I think there was a different version maybe in, in House Bill 1123 when it started that gave churches complete exemption from any, you know, any mandates of, of, uh, of restrictions and, and uh, Senator Cook's bill really balanced it out and, and, and applied the standard that has been, uh, you know, when it's been challenged in court in other states, you know, that, that has been, uh, held up at the at the federal Supreme Court level. We have a question here. Lawmakers also passed a bipartisan bill aimed at increasing police accountability. Uh, both of you were sponsors. How would you describe the approach Indiana is taking to handling police misconduct? Uh, Representative Taylor or Senator Taylor, if you want to go first and Senator Messmer, if you want to follow up, you may. Um, yeah, can, can I just do it one, real quick on the essential classification for churches? Um, one of the things that sometimes we think about when we do policy making is we don't think about the other side of the equation. So now that churches by law are now considered to be essential businesses, do understand that could cause restrictions that are uh, for what we all know is to be essential businesses like hospitals, uh medical facilities, things that that determine a person's life, to also be restricted by the fact that that you now have to count churches as essential businesses. So I, I think there's a flip side of that coin on that essential business classification. But uh, back to your question. So uh, I, 
what was your question again? Because I'm sorry, that essential business. No, no, you're fine. House Bill 106 or 1006. Uh, 1006. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Sorry. So House Bill 1006 was one of the best pieces of legislation that I've been involved with. It took a lot of collaboration between legislators and law enforcement agencies across the state um, to look at some issues associated with law enforcement hiring, uh, use of training requirements for law enforcement officials across the state, um, de-escalation, some other things things about uh, what I consider to be essential, which is, you, you know, we've got to understand that we live in the communities that are are changing on a daily basis. And we finally got some legislation in pay, place to make sure that law enforcement starts to reflect the communities that uh, that they rep, that they are uh, policing. And so for me, it's a great first step. It's not everything we need to do. But it's a great first step, and, and and I think in the next few years we'll see some benefit to that. Uh, I want to I want to just jump in for just a quick second here, and I, I don't want to spend too much time on this. I just want to uh, correct a small thing about um, uh, Senate Bill Two Sixty Three, which is the religious um, uh, the religious uh, rights bill uh, that was just talked about. Um, Senator Messmer is absolutely correct in that. It says that uh, religious activities are considered essential services. So if Walmart has a 50% capacity limit, so does a religious uh, institution. But that's for non-worship services. Uh, So if they run a a daycare or if they uh, run a food pantry, uh, the the many things that they do, uh, that religious institutions do outside of the actual traditional worship service, um, those are considered uh, an essential service. And, and treated no more strictly than other essential services. But the bill also said, when it comes to worship sp- services specifically, um, the government, both state and local, can do nothing to restrict it. So the mass mandates and, um, and any sort of uh, gathering limitations or, or social distancing that were at times applied to churches during the pandemic by Governor Holcomb, that could not happen in the future. So it does differentiate between worship services specifically and then any other activities done by the religious institutions. Yes, and, and Brandon, here's the other thing. I mean, the COVID-19 pandemic comes up once every 100 years, but we have isolated emergency orders that come into place. For example, if a church is somehow uh, uh, compromised by a windstorm or a tornado, um, the, the, <laughs> you couldn't restrict that church from going inside a structurally incompetent building. I, I, that, those I'll, are the types I'll, I'll, of, well, I'll, I'll just say that there is some question, um, the, the, the bill only applies to during an, a, a declared emergency and for temporary emergency orders, theoretically right. existing permanent sort of structural building codes would apply in that scenario. So but, you could stop a worship service in that, I think, hypothetical situation. Well, but but you could stop it at the local level. But remember, there's classifications of emergency orders, and it could be for a larger portion of the, the area. If it's, if it's for like four or five counties, it won't apply, Brandon. And that's the, for me, there's, I, I the word essential is just the problem that I have. I mean, I guess... I mean, I go to church, and I, it's essential to my life, but describing that as essential like we think of uh, 
grocery stores where people go to get their food, uh, I don't put those on the same level. We've gotten several questions about what our audience is calling you know, legislative overreach. And Anne writes in and says she's very concerned about powers being taken away from communities. Um, and one of the examples that she talks about is about cities and counties having more stringent restrictions about COVID-19. And I think what she's talking about is how there was a bill passed that now makes it that local health officials can't pass restrictions that are more stringent than the states that goes to the county government to do that. Um, Brandon, maybe you can answer this on a more broader level because I know there have been other issues when we talk in Bloomington, there was the annexation issue and there's been things about panhandling where some local control has um, been taken away by the legislature. This is a tension that exists and has existed for a very long time. The, the, the bill that that person is referencing is Senate Bill 5, which does say that rather than local health officials um, issuing temporary emergency rules that go any further than in a state rule, that now has to be done by the local elected officials. That the, the, the theory being here that local health officials are appointed. They aren't answerable directly to the public in that way that elected officials are. So it's not unreasonable to ask elected officials to make those decisions. Um, but there's a variety of, of issues on which uh, the, the legislature wrestles with whether to allow local control or whether a sort of um, standard state uh, a state standard, a broader standard should exist. And, and I know Senator Mesmer can speak to one of the, the more tense bills on that issue this year because he carried it in the Senate. Did you have to bring uh, that up? <laughs> <laughs> well, it, 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 it really illustrates the real tension that exists over that issue. Yeah, I always thought uh, the Republican Party was about smaller government. We just expanded government now into making local health decisions. I mean, listen, I, I understand the whole thing that these local uh, health officials are not elected, but do you really want them making political decisions on the health and safety of locals? Uh, you know, listen, we we live in a diverse state. Of the 92 counties, I represent one of the most densely populated counties in the state. Should we, we treat Marion County like we do Pike County? No, everybody knows that. But for some reason, and again, it goes back to my point initially, I thought that big government was supposed to be out of this. And now we've made government larger. We've done that for, you know, remember there were the governor's veto override of the local restriction for landlord-tenant law was overridden by this General Assembly so now, no, no longer can locals make a decision about their housing needs. It's got to be done at the state level. So there was a lot of that going on, Brandon. We could just, I mean, I could inundate you with 10 bills that pass like that. That's probably why we've gotten so many questions about it. Well, Senator yeah, Messer, let me, let me, I'm going to let you jump in. Let me chime in. So Senate Enrolled Act 5, uh, that doesn't take any local control away. It's, it leaves the decision completely at the local level. So it's really... To say that that takes away local control is absolutely uh, inaccurate. What it requires is okay. if, a, if a local health department is going to pass a restriction, it, you know, when there's a statewide emergency, you know, issued like we're under today, 
if they're going to issue uh, restrictions that are stricter than the state level, the, the county commission, I mean, the, the health department still writes the restriction, but they, it has to be approved by the local, I mean, in, in 90 of 92 counties, it's the commissioners. Uh, and the point is, we live in a, re a representative republic, and the people expect somebody to be accountable, you know, for decisions that are that are carried out by local government. And when you have a when you have an appointed health department that has the authority today to make you know you know any restriction they want and and don't answer to anybody, they don't they don't even answer to the commissioners today unless Senate Rule Act Five gets gets signed by the governor. Uh, this just this just allows the 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 commissioners who are elected by the people that they represent to be the final backstop. And if there's a if there's an emer a, a, a an order whatever a, a fine whatever put on a, on a individual or business, it gives a, that person the ability to appeal that that uh, that action by the local health department to the commissioners as well. So it's it's just putting putting into place people who are answerable. To the voters you know, as the ultimate decision makers, and it takes not one inch of local control away from that process. Uh, and and on, on the House Bill, thir House Bill thirteen eighty one that Brandon referred to, uh, that really, I mean, that that really did break down on a local control versus versus state regulations. And Senator Taylor was extremely supportive with me on that bill, uh, and and local control in general. I, I'm you know I agree with that. You know, as much as much of the decision making as we can leave at the local level is good, but when you have uh, local policy that starts to impact, you know, uh, state energy policy, that was the nexus for trying to move that issue forward. And it it got down to the you know the last day of of the uh, regular you know before we got into conference committee time, and that bill just just didn't have enough support to get it over the hump, and was uh, an issue that I had spent a lot of time uh, keeping it as as local of a decision-making process as it could. Uh, Senator Taylor worked with me uh, exceptionally well with his caucus, uh, but we just got stalled out and just didn't, you know, didn't have enough numbers to to get it done uh, when session was over, but that issue's not going away. It'll probably come back next year. So we, but we that, do that, only, that, that fight we, does play out, you know, you know, every session. Sarah, can I just uh, say quickly, we only have a couple minutes left. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. So I, I like uh, local control uh, for Senator Messmer. I just wish they would apply that to Marion County. I'll leave it at that. Okay. And like I said, we only have a couple minutes left and I want I do want to talk about redistricting a bit because that's, that's what's next here. Brandon, how likely is it that the parties are going to work together to, to do this? There will be committee hearings around the state like there were 10 years ago, um, but Republicans hold a supermajority in the General Assembly. Um, they will work with Democrats as much as possible um, as they do on a lot of issues, but the realities are the realities. Republicans will draw these maps for the most part, um, uh, as they did 10 years ago uh, when they got majorities in, in the House and the Senate. So um, it, it will be the same process as it is for every other piece of legislation. All right. And uh, Senator Messmer and Senator Taylor, I want to give you each a minute to talk about what you hope for as Indiana redraws its election line. Senator Taylor, you want to go first? Yeah, um, Sarah, I'm just hoping for transparency and some kind of uh, what I want to call responsible map drawing. Listen, the bottom line is that I tried to get just simple standards. I didn't want a commission. I didn't ask for anything else. All I ask for is standards in drawing these maps. We've got a supermajority legislature right now that can do pretty much what they want to do. And the accountability to me 
uh, and for all of us, should always be with the people. Unfortunately, in Indiana, we unfortunately pick our constituents. Our constituents don't pick us. And I want to leave you with this thought. We're not going to get the census data back till September 30th. When we draw these maps, my colleagues in the House of Representatives and then 25 members of my Senate delegation need to be considered of the fact that within two weeks, if we don't have these maps drawn, then those people who don't live in their district a year before the election, that means by November 8th of 2021, they could be drawn out of their district and be ineligible to run for office. I want you to keep that in mind because I don't want that kind of stuff to come up during the session. Mm-hmm. Okay. And Senator Messmer, about 30 seconds left. Sure. Well, uh, thank you, Senator Taylor. I, we do appreciate your, your comments on that. And, and I'm sure there'll be you know, every effort made, you know, to, you know, to take that, that short window we're going to have into consideration, uh, you know, when, when boundaries get, yes. get drawn. Uh, I mean, we've got to get districts that, that follow the federal guidelines that are within 1% of uh, standard deviations and, and, taking the population shifts into place, uh, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I mean, we'll all work together to try to have districts that, that, that are representative of, of their communities of interest and, and uh, make, make logical sense. So, uh, and, and we want to be transparent, you know, through the whole process with the statewide hearings that'll, that'll start taking place later in the summer. Okay. Well, that is all the time we have for today. Senators Messmer and Taylor, thank you so much for joining us. For our State House reporter, Brandon Smith, of course, we'll be looking for your coverage as the redistricting starts. I want to thank uh, our co- my co-host today, Joe Wren, and producer Ben DeBouthier, engineer John Bailey. I'm Sarah Whitmire. This has been Noon Edition. Have a great weekend. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU Public Radio. A podcast of this program is available at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. Production support comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org.